Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is your go-to show to meet the most interesting and inspiring people living, working, and recreating along the American shorelines. And not only is it my pleasure to welcome you to the show, but also welcome you to the first episode of the new year. And right before we started recording, I was reflecting on my podcasting journey and just how beautiful of an experience it's been. So I wanted to make sure to extend my gratitude to you all out there, dear listeners, because you really live at the heart and soul of this show. And I am committed to continuing to grow in my hosting abilities and making this year the best one yet. Also, while I was reflecting, I was sitting here like, can you believe that I am entering my fifth year of podcasting? Um, I honestly have no idea where the time goes, but what an adventure it's been and what an honor it's been to be able to uplift all of the guests that I've had on so far. And we have a lot of great things in store for you in 2023 at the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Um, And I could not be more thrilled to be at the helm of this show and also be here today with a very special guest. He is someone that I've wanted to have on the show for a while now. So I'm very much looking forward to the conversation that we are about to have. Rafid Hussein is a friend. He's an old colleague, and by old, I mean we worked together for a few years, but he is, in fact, younger than me. (laughs) He's a photographer, and he recently began grad school pursuing his Master of Arts in Marine Affairs at the University of Rhode Island. Rafid, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here right now. Um, this is actually my first podcast. I'm also a little bit nervous, but excited that it's happening with you. Yes, I'm so excited. I know the feeling. I still get nervous sometimes recording these things, um, but we're going to, we're just going to have fun with it and it's going to be a good time. Um, Yes, I'm excited. Yeah. So as you know, I always like to start off these conversations by giving the listeners an opportunity to get to know you Rafid the human Mm -hmm. a little bit better. So will you share a little bit of your backstory with us? Sure. So um, I was born in Dhaka, Bangladesh. Uh, My family and I immigrated to the United States when I was about two years old. Um, So I guess that's going way, way back. (laughs) Well, you got to start at the beginning, right? Like where did it all begin? Yeah. (laughs) Um, In terms of ocean conservation, though, um, it all kind of started for me way back in the seventh grade when um, my mom, and she'll tell this story a little different than me, but she (laughs) enrolled me into a summer camp program called or a summer camp camp and organization called Project Oceanology for a week long, like marine science summer camp experience um, without telling me. And it was my impression that I would be going to a normal, like 4-H in the woods type summer camp over the summer. Uh-huh. Um, but she dropped, we, we show up at this place in Groton, Connecticut. Um, she drops me off and says, all right, well, I'll see you in a week. Um, <laughs> and I was always kind of like a nerdy sciencey kid, 
but it was summertime and I just wanted to, you know, play outside and do normal kid things outside. Um, but after the first couple of days, we went trawling on a research vessel. We dissected squid. And after everything, I was I was hooked. Um, so I came back the following summer. I, uh, like all through high school, I became a junior camp counselor there every summer in high school. And then every summer of my undergrad, I was a marine science educator intern there. And then my uh, first summer outside of college, I was like a full-fledged educator there. And um, that's what drove everything else that came to be for me in the ocean science space. That's amazing. Thanks, Rafid's mom. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for real. (laughs) And so because this is a show that's focused on climate advocacy and nature and, you know, all the different forms of what being like in this space can look like. Um, I'd love to hear more about some of your favorite ways to connect with the outdoors. Do you have like a go-to way to spend outside or like a favorite place to go? Will you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So going back to my Long Island Sound roots um, in Groton, Connecticut, but yeah, like my favorite things to do growing up when I was like a teenager and early in college was at any point that I could just drive down to the beach and hang out by the coast. And that spot would always be somewhere on Long Island Sound for me. Um, and even to this day, like I don't, well, I guess I do currently, but for a lot of my post-college life, I was living in DC and I couldn't connect with the ocean itself or Long Island Sound itself, but I'd go hiking by rivers. I would find any sort of place outdoors where I could just kind of be away from it all and kind of be with myself and my thoughts. I love that. Yeah. When I, I, when I was living down in Maryland, I feel like, you know, for me being the new Englander that I am, there's something that's like so special about that. Like for, um, like the ways that I like to connect with the outdoors is like that, like rocky, like salty, briny coastline, um, that I definitely missed while I was in the mid Atlantic, but really found this like deep love and appreciation for what that whole area has to offer. Like even being in like a city like DC or well, like Annapolis is right on the Chesapeake Bay. So it's like Mm -hmm. fairly easy not to get into a whole public (laughs) access conversation, but like, you know, the water's right there, but like DC is something that It's a city that I really, really appreciate for how much green space they have to offer. And yeah, yeah, it feels like it's pretty easy to get outdoors and like connect with that whole area, even though you're in this big, big urban area. (laughs) Absolutely. And DC is famous for Rock Creek Park. And I I don't know if this is still true or not, but at one point um, it was rated to have like the best park system in or in a city in the whole in the whole country so yeah i mean that <laughs> wouldn't surprise me as right. you know i feel like both of us have traveled quite a bit and out yeah. of like all the cities i've been to i feel like i regularly am like touting how amazing dc is for how much green space they have and then also the way that they structure the city where you don't have these giant skyscrapers really for the most right. part. Like it doesn't feel like an oppressive city. Um, for sure. Yeah. It's like very easy to feel like pretty at ease there other than, you know, political tensions. and all. <laughs> all <of that>. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. 
absolutely. <laughs> and then like going back home and anytime I get a chance to get back to Long Island Sound or to New England anywhere, like going back to the water almost like feels like going back to see like an old friend where it whenever you're there, it just feels like you're at home. But um, no matter how long, like how long it's been since you've been back, you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. It's like, hello, old friend. You're yeah. very like up here in Maine. I mean, same in Connecticut. It's like, you're very frigid mm-hmm. and cold. Like so many yeah. people here in New England, but I love you. anyway. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. So speaking of the ocean and we'll get a little bit more into like what, you know, how we connected and some of the work that you, you did at Ocean Conservancy and what you're doing now. But um, at a higher level, what do you love most about the ocean? Like what draws you to it the most? Well, I mean, the, the, the first thing obviously that comes to mind is just the place where you can go to just find peace and do something fun or um, just hang out and be alone or spend time with friends and family. It's just there for you when you need it to be. Um, but at a, at a more, I guess, important level. And as I've gotten older and, you know, gotten an education and everything, it's learning about like how important it is in terms of what it does for our planet and does for all people climate wise, where, you know, it absorbs so much heat, the food it provides for people, the, the cultural benefits, the, the everything, um, the ocean is just, like a core part of who we are as a society, as a species, and as like a whole living unit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, totally. And so sort of in that same vein, this has become a little bit of a fun social experiment for me, not necessarily on the show. I guess I've been asking this more lately, but um, we ask this all the time through the Healthy Ocean Coalition. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just because it's like, you know, two thirds of our name, but, um, and it can, this can mean so many different things to so many different people, but what does a healthy ocean look like to you? Like when you say the words healthy ocean or envision that, sure. like what comes through your mind? That's a great question. Um, from like a purely almost number, like quantitative basis, I would say, you know, it's got to be clean to a certain level. It's got to be able to provide, um, resources to a certain level. Um, but I guess the more, aside from it being, you know, actually healthy and clean for the people and whatever lives in it, um, being having access to it, any kind of healthy ocean needs to be accessible by mm-hmm. all people. Um, like, what's the point of having a clean, healthy ocean if you can't get to it? Totally. Yeah. Um, and you know, we might've heard a little bit about some of these influences for you with your experience Mm -hmm. with the, um, camp that you went to. Um, but I'm curious to hear more about what influenced you to pursue a career in the climate and ocean conservation space. Was it those experiences at summer camp or were there things that sort of compounded on top of, uh, that experience? Sure. So, I mean, being from Bangladesh, being born there and having so much of my family still <clears throat> out there, um, as you know, and as I'm sure your listeners know, like Bangladesh has been the classic case study in so many textbooks about, hey, in 50 years or however many years, 50, 100 years, so much of Bangladesh is going to be underwater, so much of it's going to be displaced. And having 
been to Bangladesh only only once, but even in that short period, seeing like how easily places flood and having like that first eye, firsthand experience of wow, like this is where I'm from and I'm never going to be able to go back at after a certain point, my family won't ever be able to be there after a certain point. And then knowing about how many people live there on the coast and the poverty that exists there, understanding that so many of these people have no help. And for a lot of them, for all of them, pretty much that none of it's really even their fault. Mm -hmm. So um, that's been a big driver. Um, And then obviously the camp stuff was, at first going back to, wow, like this is a beautiful place, but then learning about how important um, the ocean is to everyone, not just to like my family and people like me, um, that really drove me to to be able to do something to help people. I figured, you know, I'm not smart enough to be a doctor or a lawyer. Um, yes, you but are. I wanna, <laughs> but I want to be able to do something to... <laughs> Or I guess fine. I guess I'll 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 take that compliment and say what, I'm here to hype really... you up, Rafid. Don't <laughs> talk about you. yourself like that. <laughs> Thank you. I guess I'll say that what what I'm passionate about and what I love, um, trying to find a way to use that to do something good for the world. Um, I feel like knowing what to know about the ocean and using my experiences to help the ocean is the is what I can do to make the world a little bit of a better place, or at least try my best to. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And I also think that you brought up a really important point that I just want to put like a finer emphasis on mm-hmm. in that there are um, like with living in the United States or in like a westernized place where we're not necessarily feeling or seeing the in- most severe impacts of climate change right Mm -hmm. in our backyards. And I mean, some of us are. Like if you look at every single year, the billions and billions of dollars and lives that are being lost to um, hurricane season, wildfires, floods, you name it, you know, like Mm -hmm. we have all of that still going on right now out in California. Um, So, I mean, it is very real what we're experiencing here, but it's like real light version compared to like what is happening in other parts of the world. And most of those places, like you were saying with Bangladesh, are the ones that mm-hmm. are not responsible for spewing decades and decades and decades worth of greenhouse gases into the air like we did mm-hmm. with the Industrial Revolution and continue to do that. And I think um, that's just a really important thing for listeners, I think, to consider if you aren't already is yeah, maybe where you're sitting, like what I'm seeing right now in Maine is like a beautiful winter day out my window. Mm-hmm. And I feel really passionate about the work that I do. But I think it's can be like back of mind for a lot of folks. They're like, oh, it's kind of a lovely winter day here. That's nice. But like, yeah. that's like a version of climate change. But there are people in this world that are literally dying Because of things that they didn't even do. And that is why it is so important for our, like the United States, our country that we're both sitting in and, you know, other westernized cities and countries and places in the world to reduce their reliance on fossil fuels. Um, Mm -hmm. Because it's, we're, we're all in this together. Like, I don't want to sound like, like a super hippie, but like (laughs) what we're doing here today does not just stay here in our little bubble. Absolutely. And just to kind of 
um, piggyback on what you're saying about things that are happening to you in in the United States specifically, um, and drawing on from my own experiences. Um, and again, in, in the United States, even it, it it's affecting the poorest people first, the people mm-hmm. with the least amount of resources, the most vulnerable communities. Um, from a broad example of just talking about environmental pollution and air pollution, um, things like um, power plants are cited right near where poor communities are, often mm-hmm. African-American communities because of things like redlining. But drawing from my own experience, um, I had the opportunity to visit my brother in Pittsburgh a few years back um, just after they experienced some major flooding. Um, and for people that don't know, Pittsburgh has a lot of rivers and a lot of valleys. Um, it's up around the Appalachians. Um and I got to go into, uh, by God, I I helped volunteer to go into people's homes and basements and clean up some of the mess after a big flood went through and people's whole livelihoods, all of their memories, everything is just gone mm-hmm. because they live right in, or near near a river and they don't have any or much recourse to be able to, uh, to, to get insurance or to come back from that afterwards. Um, and then another experience I had was with the, um, I had the opportunity to meet um, folks from the uh, Pointishin tribe in um, southern Louisiana. And I hope uh, I hope I'm saying their tribe's name correctly. But um, we I got the chance to with a group of people um, spend time with the tribe and learn from them and speak with a lot of the tribal members and one of the most impactful conversations I had was with this kid who kid, kid, I should say young, young man. Um, <laughs> we were about the same age. We were like 23, <laughs> 24 at the time. Yeah. Um, and he was telling me about how um, he and his friends would grow up fishing and h- hanging out on a certain barrier Island near where they lived in Louisiana and for their whole childhoods. Um, and, Today, he can't go back there because that place literally doesn't exist. The place that he and his friends would spend every summer just hanging out and having fun is just literally gone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that w- And that was within this one person's lifetime. Um, so that's just crazy, crazy to think about that it's happening and it's happening now. Yeah. It's not and just something it's that's like happening every- 50 years in the future. Totally. It's like I think that's the framing that um- – you know, I know that we have it and a lot of people that we interact with in our circles <laughs> think about it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I feel like that's what we need to continue to put out in like the public discourse is that this is this is happening now. <laughs> it's right. been happening and it's going to continue to get worse. And like you were saying, you know, when you look at this uh, from a systems perspective, which I feel like is such an important way to look at climate change is, you know, it, it doesn't, none of this exists in a silo and it really is putting weight on, um, the people whose, you know, shoulders, this, every, all of the injustices have been on. It's like a direct Mm -hmm. link to like institutional and systemic racism. When you think about, um, where like power plants are cited, where are the most polluted areas and who's living near them. And then you look at like, okay, what does that do to somebody's health? And then how does that link into like somebody's financial security? And like, it's all connected. And I think Mm -hmm. that it's just incredibly fascinating and 
heartbreaking. And, <laughs> you know, I think it's nice that, you know, people like you and our, our community are out there trying to do something about it and trying to make change because I feel like this is, this is what keeps me going and gets me up mm-hmm. every day is, is trying to make any sort of difference that I can to help, help stop this giant <laughs> snowball. I guess Absolutely. snowball isn't even a good, like, like it's not a snowball. Like it's mm-hmm. like a giant ball of fire. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> anyway, <Yep. laughs> I'm going to pull myself out of this hole that I'm going down. <laughs> um, so we met through your role at Ocean Conservancy Correct. because we at the Healthy Ocean Coalition work really closely with the ocean planning and ocean policy team there. Yeah. Um, so much so that I feel like if organizations were people, I feel like the HOC and the OC would be really good friends. Yeah. Um, we love you guys over there. Will you talk a little bit more about um, your role that you had at the Ocean Conservancy? Sure. So I spent five years there and all five years I was on the ocean planning team. Um, I started off being the ocean planning uh, program assistant. Then I was the program coordinator. And then I ended up before I left for grad school, becoming the ocean uh, planning specialist for our organization. Um, ocean planning in its simplest terms is just kind of like a, a tool, a methodology for all ocean users to come together and talk about when and where and how they're using a ocean space and to coordinate and collaborate to make sure that they're not using it at the same time or they're not interfering with each other's work or business or advocacy efforts um, <clears throat> to reduce conflict at sea. So for example, um, a hot button topic that everyone is talking about nowadays in terms of ocean planning is offshore wind siting. Um, we'd, we want all ocean users to come together to talk about how and where you might want to put an offshore wind farm where it doesn't interfere with, um, for example, like a shipping lane or where the Navy conducts testing or um, important like trade routes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I often think about it like, um, I guess some ways that I've explained it to other people is If you think about land, which is easy to do as us being terrestrial beings, Mm -hmm. pretty much everything that we do on land is planned, right? Like we have a plan for where developments are going to be sited, where there are parks and roads and all of that, because we can see with our own eyes how busy a space it is on, um, you know, wherever we are, whatever Mm -hmm. town we're in, whatever city we're in. And the ocean is the same way. Like, yeah, when you're standing on a beach looking out at this big, vast, like, oceany area, maybe you see a couple boats. You know, it doesn't necessarily look super busy. But when you start to overlay all of the different uses of the ocean, it is an incredibly busy place. And then you add in, like, where are the wildlife? Like, what are these migration routes? Like, the right whales? And how do you avoid that with shipping lanes? You know what I mean? Like, it's just mm-hmm. such a busy, busy space. I know I'm preaching to the choir with you, but for listeners that are, like, yeah. maybe newer to ocean planning, um, there are data portals, actually, that would be pretty interesting for you to check out, like the Northeast um, 
ocean data portal and the mid-Atlantic, if you go there, actually like you can just Google them, but there are layers that you can put on top of each other on a map that show you like just how busy it is out there. So um, what we do collaboratively, like with Ocean Conservancy, Healthy Ocean Coalition, and so many others, we have a ton of partners in this, Mm. is think about all right, how do we be smart about this? And how does how do we make sure that like the voices that need to be at the table to inform decision-making around ocean use are at the table? And how do we be smart about things like offshore wind planning? Like we can be supportive of renewable energies, but we also want to make sure that where those turbines and turbines are going are, are you know, th- really thoughtfully planned. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> there's a lot to think about when you're like, oh man, the ocean... It's it's packed out there. Right. For sure. Like you were just saying that it looks like it's so big and it covers, like everyone says, 75% of the planet. But the coastlines where people um, live, so much of the world lives, um, it's crowded. And it's getting more crowded with more uses and more development. Um, so the planning part is super important. It seems like common sense, but um, it's a big challenge. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the the ocean data portals and to talk a little bit more about like my role specifically or my team's role specifically um, and the kind of legislation that we we advocated for um, a lot of my a lot of my job or a main part of my job an important part of my job was to um, <clears throat> help organize this thing called our uh, annual fly in for for our program so that pretty much means we bring in. Um, different stakeholders, different ocean users from around the country to Washington, D.C., so that we can facilitate conversations between them and their members of Congress and the relevant federal agencies um, so that they themselves could talk about how um, various ocean policies and funding like benefits their businesses and benefits their livelihoods and their communities. Um, and how other policies may harm their businesses and communities. Um, like through the work, I really learned a lot about how important storytelling is and how important um, stakeholder perspectives are because coming from like a strategic point of view, um, a, a story or a, a narrative is a lot more powerful when it comes from a constituent versus just from an environmental advocacy group. Mm-hmm. Um, if the person that is being spoken to is being spoken to by their the person that voted for them, it's a lot more powerful of a story of a point than it is from someone like me. So that Absolutely, was a big yeah. part of the role is making those connections between people. Yeah. And, you know, I participated in, in a few of those fly-ins and yep. it, they were all so well done. Um, and I think you're exactly right. It's, it's the messenger is so important. So for folks out there that might be interested in reaching out to your member of Congress, we definitely encourage you to do so. There's so mm. much power in being someone's constituent. And that doesn't mean if, you know, you want to talk to somebody that is, you know, in a different district that you can't because you totally can, but, um, you carry so much like influence as somebody that is living in a member's district. Um, and just be your authentic self and, you know, talk about the things that you know and love. And I think, um, that's really the most powerful 
way to be an advocate is just to like weave authenticity through everything that you do. I also have like a, I have a really interesting relationship with uh, your fly-ins because the last one that I went to and probably the last one that Ocean Conservancy maybe hosted in person, I'm not sure about that, um, was the last time that I traveled before everything shut down with COVID in 2020. (laughs) Like I've traveled since then, but it's like this big milestone memory for me of being on the hill. And it was when everybody was doing like the elbow bumps, you know, like we didn't know it was airborne. So like no one was wearing masks. We were just hand sanitizing everything. Um, And yeah. And then it was like, I got home and, and the world changed (laughs) yeah it was a it was a bizarre experience because yeah literally like two days later um it showed up COVID showed up on the hill and then everyone that was at that fly in in the office got sent home Mm -hmm. and then that was the last time I was in that office for any period of time yeah just so surreal yeah um so now I'd like to fast forward a little bit to current times because I mean, one of the many reasons that I invited you on today is because I thought it would be interesting to check in with you early on in your grad school journey. And then again, if you're up for it toward the end, um, because I think it's something that I wish that I had paid a little bit more attention to documenting when I was in grad school, like all the changes and the growth that happens and like what's your mindset going in versus leaving? Um, so I think your perspective could be really valuable for um, everyone to hear, especially listeners that are considering maybe going back to school or applying to grad school. Um, so I'm curious to hear more about like what played into your decision to, to go to grad school. Sure. So um, a big part of it, I would say was while I was at Ocean Conservancy, Um, I was just surrounded by so many (laughs) smart, brilliant people Mm -hmm. and, um, they're all very welcoming. They all took my like opinions and my thoughts seriously. But as someone with just an undergraduate degree, I just kind of felt like I was missing like something. There's some in, in terms of like, it's I, it's hard for me to find the words, but like it, was, it was that. Yeah, like not credentials. Even, like, not even yeah. credentials specifically, <laughs> but it's almost seemed like they just knew something that I, I didn't know in yeah. terms of interacting with each other and like how to how to be how to talk to people in a certain way and mm-hmm. like I guess I was lacking confidence is what it really comes down to. Yeah. Is um I felt like I everyone else knew something I didn't know, even though that wasn't necessarily true per se, but I just knew that there was a way for me to learn and grow in an academic setting that just couldn't be replicated in a professional way. Um, even though I was learning and growing a lot and I learned to grow, grew a lot over my five years at Ocean Conservancy, um, I just felt like I just needed an academic setting to sit down and just become a sponge and absorb as much as I possibly could. Yeah, I can relate to that. When I made the decision to go to grad school, I was working at the Chesapeake Bay program. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a major research institution Mm -hmm. with, I feel like, some of the best and brightest minds there. And, you know, it was a similar thing. I was in my, like, early to mid-20s and um, had my undergrad degree. But I felt like in these conversations with people who are, you know, making policy, um, and I just felt like they're so 
brilliant mm-hmm. that I was like, mm, I feel like I need, I need more. I think I need more. And then I also feel like at least at the time that I was starting to think about what was next, because the position I had there was a fellowship. So I could only be there for three years. Mm-hmm. Um, everything that all the jobs that seemed interesting to me or step up had this like barrier though of like, I couldn't even get my foot in the door without having that degree. So I was like, all right, I suppose (laughs) it's time for me to start thinking about going to grad school. Absolutely. And that, that definitely was an important factor as well as being able to move up. Um, you're right. There's that barrier. Um, and then something else for me personally is I had a science specific background in un- through my undergrad, but I didn't have the policy educate the formal policy education. I I learned um, on the fly pretty much with OSHA Conservancy, but mm-hmm. I thought that I needed to get more of a formal base in policy making and um, that side of things. I think that's so interesting because I relate to that, but it's almost like in the reverse. So like Mm -hmm. my undergrad was in communication and journalism because in undergrad, I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to do with my life, Mm -hmm. but people told me to go to college. So here I am. And, um, you know, no matter what, somebody is going to need a a good communicator. And once I figure it out. And so once I realized, oh, I really want to be in this, this conservation and climate space, I was able to find a series of jobs that, you know, science communication, climate communication, those things are all very important. Um, But I wasn't necessarily sure if that was like where I wanted to pigeonhole myself. And I I was getting to a place of like, all right, unless I'm going to do this full time as a science communicator, I feel like I need more of that like the earth, like the earth sciences and understanding how systems work. And like, um, so that was like, it's sort of like we had the same thought, but it was like with different, um, subject matter, like d- just right. recognizing the skill sets that we had and maybe we wanted and then For finding sure. a program that would offer those things. For sure. And like the most powerful thing, I guess, Ocean Conservancy gave me was, um, perspective on, what's happening out in like the uh, advocacy conservation space and what's missing. And then looking inside myself is what do I know? And what, what don't I know? Mm. Um, and just trying to fill those gaps as best as I could. Um, and then something else that ocean conservancy taught me, and I, I touched on it before is um, the power of like storytelling. So um, kind of trying to be at the, the, the center of, um, science, policy, advocacy, and um, communication, and how they all kind of work together to to affect change. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. So, um, tell me about your grad program now, and how are you settling in so far? Sure. So, um, like you mentioned before, I am in the Marine Affairs program at the University of Rhode Island. Um, I'm going after my master's of art. So we, we call ourselves, or at least maybe it's just me, but I'm a mama, M-A-M-A. Uh, I'm a mama boy. Um, but the program has been, has been excellent. Um, I think I, I'm pretty sure this is true, but URI has had the, it has the first Marine Affairs program in the country. Um, so they've been around for a while. Um, my, my classes are really cool in that 
I have students who are fresh out of, like I have a handful of students that are fresh out of undergrad um, pursuing the same degree. I have a handful of students that are, um, have like years and decades of real world experience pursuing a similar degree, but it's over like a year, a year, year and a half instead of a full two years. Um, so I'm in class with like members of the Coast Guard that have been in the Coast Guard for 10 plus years, members of the Navy, um, and being able to sit in class and hear their real world perspective on on things has been invaluable. Like mm-hmm. I've been in class where we're learning about um, IUU fishing and piracy, and we get to hear stories from the folks that have been on the had to board IUU vessel boats and have in, like seen piracy at sea or slavery at sea with their with their own eyes. Um, and of course, my professors are all excellent. Um, I felt like this past semester I learned so much, um, but it was definitely it was definitely an adjustment going from working like a nine to five type job to becoming a student again myself. Yeah, um, it's like you have going, to flip a switch in your brain to like remember exactly. how to um, like structure your day as a student and yeah. and study. <laughs> yeah, what's that? Yeah. Doing homework, like I got very accustomed to coming home after like a long day at work and just kind of plopping myself in front of the TV and relaxing for a few hours before doing chores or something. But nowadays it's I come home from class and then I just keep reading until I go to bed. Exercise and time management. I always say that. So when I was in grad school, I found a program through Virginia Tech that allowed me to work full time and Mm -hmm. go to school full time. And I never drank coffee before that. I was like, I learned what just like maximum exhaustion was to the point where I was like, what is this caffeine I yeah. hear it. I hear it gives me energy and I am just totally drained right now. So, yeah. um, but yeah, now I'm very much a big coffee lover, but, um, yeah, I mean, but you get through it. So like, I don't want people listening that, that like are thinking about grad school to be like, Oh, that sounds terrible because you, ju- you adjust to like everybody, like, you know, For sure. and, and it doesn't, I feel like when I look back on it now, um, like it doesn't feel like I was like so overwhelmed and exhausted, but I mean, grad school, it makes you work very hard for a reason. So I think another piece of advice that I would have is like, um, it's good to take some time unless you really know what you want to focus on to sort of explore maybe what you want to like really focus in on because you're going to be like eating, sleeping and breathing that for however long your program is. <laughs> so it's like, no. you better love what you're studying. 100% cosign on that. And mm-hmm. the funny thing is like, that's, that's exactly kind of like the advice that my, my boss gave me before going into um, grad school was like my original plan at Ocean Conservancy was, and I was only on like a one year type. Uh, I only had funding for a year. So my original plan was, well, I guess I'll stick around for Ocean Conservancy for a year and then go to grad school after that. But um, as my year was coming up, my my program got more funding, um, and I talked to my boss about it, and she was like, "Well, what what do you want to study?" And I kind of I was like, "Well, uh, I don't know, like fisheries and impacts and climate." And she was like, "That's great, but like you need something 
a lot more specific mm. and you need something that you you really really want to sit and learn about yeah um and like you were saying before i don't want to like dissuade people because i like i've been having like a really good time like my cohort's great my classmates are great and i like i said before i learned a lot um and having that perspective like the years of work experience and um knowing what I really wanted to learn about has like led to success for me in grad school. Um, and I know this has kind of been like a trope is not the right word, but I think it's just something important to talk about. Like my undergrad um, grade, my GPA, in my undergrad was not good. Mm. Um, I'll be honest and say it was like 2.68 mm-hmm. when I finished, <laughs> when I finished my undergrad, which mm-hmm. Um, again, not good. There were like, I had other life challenges going on while I was finishing up school. Um, and I didn't have the direction that I have now. And then I was kind of just lost and trying to get through, get through when I just get through my, my undergrad program. Um, but like my first semester here in grad school, I actually finished with a Mm 4.0 for the, for the first time I I've ever I've, for the first time ever, I've gotten straight A's my whole life. So it's like, um, when, when you know what you want to learn about, things are different. No matter how how hard it is, you can get a lot more out of yourself when you have direction. Yeah, I'm sitting over here smiling. It, I'm just really happy that you shared that and that you were open and vulnerable about that. And um, it's this is something that I've also talked about a few times on this show because I um, – could not relate to that more. I um, I do not feel like I was considered a um, quote unquote good student. I don't feel like I fit into the public schooling systems, or at least the ones that I was a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it, over time, when you're struggling to fit into a system that you don't necessarily fit into. Um, that really shapes your own view of yourself. And, you know, it was like deep down, I've always been like, oh, I love learning. I know I'm an intelligent person. But when you're like consistently kind of told by these like um, institutions that you're in that you're struggling and you're not meeting the grades. And I I think that showed up for me. um, If you look at the classes that offered subject matter that I was interested in and I could see being applicable to my life, I would get A's. But if Mm. I was like, this is just a formality for me to pass so I can get through school, Mm. I would just phone it in and, um, you know, those grades would bring down my GPA big time to the point that I, you know, I don't feel like I look good on paper as a student and didn't ever really envision myself going to grad school because I didn't think I'd be able to get in. And um, same, yeah, uh, like one hundred percent. That's part of the reason why it took me so long to apply. Even is just because I was like, well, who's going to take me after this GPA? Like, this is a terrible, terrible GPA. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't feel like the way that I look on these pieces of paper I need to submit to someone is an accurate reflection of me. And I don't want to go through that, like, sort of like opening those old wounds of, 
feeling like I'm not good enough for an institution. So I was like, you know what, I'm interested in grad school, but I don't think I'm ever going to get in, especially also because I'm not a good standardized test taker. And that's sort Mm -hmm. of the system that we live in is, you know, you have to do like GREs and SATs and all of that. And um, I found this program. Well, I feel like it found me because the call for students um, came through my email one day and the program that I went to doesn't require you to take the GRE because they take like a more holistic look at the human being and your life experience and your passion and like all of the things that I've always wanted an education system to look at. And so it was just the perfect fit for me. Um, but when I, you know, when I got accepted, I started crying. It was like, I never in my life thought that I would ever be somebody that was like someone that would have my master's. And then it was exactly what you're saying. I graduated with like 4.0 and all A's, couldn't get enough of the subject matter, but it was because I found something that I was interested in. Yeah. No. Cosine 100%. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you shared that. And I hope that that was helpful to listeners out there because, um, I feel like we are not the only ones that have struggled with that and have felt frustrated with it. And so if you're like sitting there like, oh, maybe I struggled through this system too and I want my grad, my, you know, my master's degree, it's possible you're listening to two people that did it. (laughs) For sure. And I'll I'll also say that um, the program kind of found me. I like, I heard about it through, through my colleagues. Um, And I don't know if this is just a COVID thing or not, but, and also, I also didn't need to take the GREs and I found a bunch of other top tier programs that I didn't like, didn't require the GREs anymore or don't. So or schools and systems are moving away from like standardized testing nowadays and mm-hmm. moving again more toward like the holistic point of view, the holistic approach and finding, finding students. And I think it's leading to good results and leading to more people like us um, being able to make like a positive impact and succeed and do well. Definitely. And so do you have a focus within the program or is that something that comes over time or um, are there like specific projects that you'll be working on or that your program works on that you want to talk about sure. or highlight? Sure. So I, I guess as of right now, I technically don't have a specific area, but again, having like this background experience, I've been able to open up my own specific area and that area is offshore wind impacts on coastal communities. Ooh, so during um, the during the, the application process, I was able to connect with a professor who works on offshore wind impacts. Um, and I was able to get a research assistantship through that. And I'm working with him in his lab and with a couple other professors at the University of Rhode Island. And um, we're, we're focusing on, they're, they're experts on um, perspective, uh, perceptions and studying perceptions of people. And mm-hmm. um, what drew me toward the program was being able to combine quantitative um, data collection and qualitative data collection. Mm-hmm. So their, their research focus is on, um, hold on, let me take a, let me take a step back. Sure. <laughs> they're, their research is surrounding how the public views offshore wind farms using a um, media data analysis that they're doing. So they looked at um, different media that they're able to find and then 
um, interviewed folks that have been exposed to that media to see if that media gave them a positive perspective on offshore wind or a negative perspective on offshore wind. Hmm. And they're using that to understand how to communicate with folks to see, to give them an idea of best ways to engage stakeholders. Um, Sorry, I know that was a lot of like mouth tremble that came out all at once. (laughs) Sometimes it's hard to get into like the specifics about, you know, what you do in like the royal use sense. Like I do this Mm -hmm. all the time where I'm like, how much can I say before your eyes glaze over? But I think that was really fascinating. I feel like also you're speaking to a very niche audience of people that are listening to a podcast about like ocean conservation. So you're in good company. (laughs) Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So I'm still in the early stages of figuring out what exactly my piece of that puzzle is going to be. uh Um, But it's definitely going to be surrounding offshore wind farms and how they're impacting coastal communities and what I can do to mitigate any negative impacts and um, advocate for the benefits being shared um, equitably amongst everyone in a community. Yeah, that's really important work and sort of makes me wonder, it brings up this other question of, you know, when, when we think about policy or siting or any sort of decisions that are being made relating to like, um, you know, development in the ocean or really anything around the ocean. Um, like what comes to mind to you for you when you think about like what needs, whose voices need to be included or like what makes good policy or what makes something responsibly cited? So the, the very basic and it sounds very basic but it's very difficult to do well and correctly but um ensuring that all voices everyone being impacted is on the decision making table so black and brown communities poor communities um they're often the ones that have to deal with the brunt of the burden when it comes to any sort of developmental project but they often have to also then face like the negative consequences without facing any of the benefits So any good policy um, brings in those folks to understand how they are being impacted negatively and finding out ways where they get benefits from these projects without getting as much as or an equal share as of like any potential negative side effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at the end of the day, that's what it really kind of comes down to is, um, and I didn't come up with this quote. I'm not sure who did, but what I've heard a lot of is if you're not on, um, if you're not on the decision-making table, you're on the menu. Oh um, yeah. I wonder, I don't know who said that, but I've seen that before. Yeah. Um, so it, it comes down to just making sure that everyone that's being impacted is involved in um, the final decisions that are being made early, early in the decision-making process, early in the planning process and often throughout the whole process, not just toward the end. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's something that um, like Ocean Conservancy and that like we do at the Healthy Ocean Coalition, Mm -hmm. like both of our groups do that very well. I mean, honestly, that is basically the whole reason why the Healthy Ocean Coalition exists is to do exactly that and like plug advocates into these decision making processes. And like that, that work, it's hard. Like Mm -hmm. um, it takes like full time 
working with people to like on both sides of, you know, the decision makers and the advocates to try to connect folks and um, have these messages be heard and this knowledge and wisdom be heard. Um, and it's like, you know, super worthwhile, the work. I, I feel very fortunate to do this work, but it can be challenging. And I think that, I mean, you're very well aware of those challenges as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that I like to talk about on this show is just like really taking a look at like sort of the day-to-day or like what people's experiences are like working in the climate space or advocacy space or, you know, what have you. Um, and some of that involves talking about like the harder aspects of it. So I'm, right. I'm wondering to, I'd like to hear more about like in your experience, what are some of the most challenging aspects of working sure. in the climate? And you kind of, you kind of touched on it is um, climate impacts so many different people in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. So being able to get all those impacts together in like a cohesive, like target um, is challenging. If there's so many different perspectives, so many different impacts um, to look at things holistically can be hard. So that's what it really comes down to is the coalition work. Um, every coalition has, or every organization in a coalition has different niche targets but you need to be able to combine all those so that everyone's targets are met and then mm-hmm. everyone gets like the Bennett, the positive impacts. Um, it kind of, it c- kind of reminds me of like what we were just talking about before in grad school and thinking holistically to get good results. You kind of have to do the same thing in the climate world is you got to look at everything, not just at one, one target or one, um, one measure of success to make something work well. Yeah. Yeah. I love that perspective. And because we don't want to fixate on like the hard times or the more challenging things. How about the flip side of it? Like what are the most rewarding aspects of this work for you and what brings you the most joy? Great question. Um, The most rewarding part of it or the the best part of it for me, and it kind of connects with the hardest part is you get to meet so many different types of people mm-hmm. and you get to learn from so many different types of people, so many different backgrounds. So you just learn so much about different cultures, different um, ways of thinking about the world and different parts of the ocean that are important to different people in different ways. Like Long Island Sound to me is important for one reason. Um, it could be important to someone else for a completely different set of reasons and learning those different or learning those differences and learning the, or finding the similarities in those differences is always, always super fun and super cool. Yeah. Uh, and it's and just, it's, it's like totally unique. And it's like just thinking about, you know, I always say no work day for me is ever the same. Like yeah. I'm always interacting with the most fascinating people. And it's, I mean, it's like one of the most like basic, um, I guess, I don't know, adages or whatever, where it's like, oh, you learn something new every day, but it's like so true just through like broadening this community and like getting to know people, building relationships and trying to understand like how climate is impacting them and then working to like build an advocacy strategy from there is like one of the most fascinating things that I feel like I've ever been a part of. For sure. And then there's something about like learning about conflicts too, that is just so 
it's so satisfying being able to clean clean conflicts up. It's almost mm. like, you know, when you find like a dusty table and you're trying to like <laughs> get the dust off the table and you and it's it's so satisfying just wiping cleaning it up and like getting people to connect and um i don't know maybe that wasn't the great the greatest comparison but <laughs> this episode is brought to you by pledge yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um no i know i totally know what you mean um so i can't have you on here though and not talk about photography yes. to pivot a little bit um i admire your work i feel like you are one of my favorite photographers Thank You're you. so incredibly talented, and um, I definitely think that that's another, in addition to all of the other stuff we've talked about, um, I feel like listeners are getting a good picture of, like, why I, like, I adore you so much, um, is that we have so much in common, yeah. but will you talk about your artistic journey a little bit, and, like, sure. what drew you to photography, what types of things are you and your lens drawn to, like, talk about that a little more. Absolutely. So... For me, <clears throat> photography kind of just, I guess it's, it, photography, I guess, started off with me in drawing. Um, mm. um, I am a terrible drawer. I'm a terrible <laughs> artist. Um, I would have like something in my mind that I would see and want to draw or like I'm looking at like a cup and want to try that cup. And I just could not, never make it look like what my mind was looking at. Um, but starting off with just like, with photography, I could see something and, and I could see that something is pretty and I could like take a photo and have it look like what I just saw. And, um, and that's brought me so much satisfaction. Mm -hmm. uh, and it started off with literally like cell phone photography, not even iPhone photography. Oh, it, was, <laughs> it was like, like my, my Nikon brick phone. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Um, it was like, I had like a Samsung, like not a flip phone. Oh, maybe it was a flip. It was a flip phone. <laughs> um, and that's how my photography started is flip phone photography. It has um, to start somewhere. I mean, honestly, right. like it's all archived now, but sometimes I go back and look at my like first ever Instagram posts and I'm like, Me what? <laughs> Me too. I'll, I'll go back and like take a screenshot of it and send it to you. Yeah, please do. I'll, um, I'll trade you. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, but then like I started off with like posting on Facebook here and there and people be like, wow, like that's a pretty nice photo. Um, and I don't know, like it sounds lame, but I was like, wow, cool. People think that like, that's, that's nice. Mm -hmm. um, and then I upgraded to not an iPhone, but an iPod touch. And um, that's when I got an Instagram and started doing a lot of iPod touch photography. <laughs> And it was the Very same niche, deal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then I, like, I was in school. I was like a hard, like, I was an environmental science major, and um, I got. I was just very done thinking so black and white and thinking like numbers and data. And um, I started taking more and more photos with my my iPod Touch. Um, just as an escape from just to be a little bit creative and be, have an escape from like science. Um, and then I upgraded to an iPhone finally <laughs> and it was the same type of deal. And then eventually like my 
I don't know, I would say my sophomore year of college, my junior year of college, my friend got their hands on a DSLR camera, mm. which for your audience, if they, they don't know, it's just like your standard, like quote unquote, fancy camera. Um, and they let me borrow it. So I kind of taught myself how to shoot on manual mode. Um, and when I say I taught myself, I mean, I just didn't have a formal education in it. It mm-hmm. was, I had another friend that like was an avid photographer, is an avid photographer. Um, shout out to my friend, Justin Briasco. Um, <laughs> and he like took me out one day and he taught me about like aperture. He taught me about shutter speed. He taught me about ISO. Mm-hmm. And um, I kind of went running from there. Um, I was online one day, um, like maybe a, like six or seven months after that and saw a um, advertisement for this thing called NASA Social where you like apply and if they they pick you, you get to go to Cape Canaveral and take a photo or like sh- like shoot a, a rocket launch cool. and um, share it with your audience. But at the time I didn't really have any audience, but I um, sort of lied. I sort of like bet <laughs> the truth a little bit. And I told them that like, if I got selected, I could get these photos onto my university's like Instagram profile mm-hmm. um, and they picked me and I was like, oh shit, I need to actually go <laughs> do that now. So after I got picked, I went to like my university's communication department and um, was like, hey, I got picked for this thing. If I go, like, would you guys post the photos I take? And they said, yes, absolutely. And you're like, uh, oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah. And sorry, I'm like going down like this big whole rabbit hole. No apologies necessary. I'm absolutely loving (laughs) hearing about this and just seeing like the similarities that I've, you know, that I've had with some of my, my artistic journey as well. Yeah. I think it's awesome. And then, and then finally, like after that had happened, I like my, after I finished my undergrad, my uh, parents helped me buy like my first own DSLR it was like a Nikon D like 3,100 used um, for like $300. But that thing was my pride and joy. For that her. was mine was a Nikon D3,400. Nice. And it's like my, I feel like I look at it like a, like it's my first child. Yeah. yeah <laughs> for real. And then, and then I was off. Like I would take photos of anything and of everything I possibly could. I would sneak my camera into basketball games um, I would sneak it into where, like concerts. Um, I would do, and obviously wouldn't ever sell them for money or anything. It was just for my own, mm-hmm. my own satisfaction, my own dreams of becoming like a nature photographer, working for Nat Geo or something when I was like one day or becoming like a cool concert photographer or something. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and then when I got to Ocean Conservancy, um, my role again had nothing to do with communications, really nothing to do with photography at all. But um, over time, I just found opportunities to. Well, I was a little bit strategic, and I knew that I wanted to take photos at any point that I could. Um, so I, I friended like all the comms people I could on Instagram, and then um, strategically would post photos of oceany scenes and. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you're like look at how good i am don't you want to share my work <laughs> plastics program actually um our trash receipts team they every once in a while would need like extra volunteers just 
just for manpower really or people power i should say to like li- literally just move to carry bags to mm-hmm. um in different parts of the country and i'd say hey i totally would volunteer for that um but also like if you guys want i can take photos of the event and um like y- y'all could use it for whatever you whatever you want to use them for if they're good enough for you and Luckily for me, the photos all were good enough for Ocean Conservancy. Um, and then over a couple of years of doing that, my boss, Amy Trice, who's, I love her. She was the reason why I ended up getting this title. Um, she really pushed for me to to get that added onto my job title as special assignment photographer, just because one, I was going off and taking all these photos. Um, and then two, like I wasn't necessarily always being recognized for taking those photos. So she just wanted to make sure that that was reflected in what I did. Yeah. Good on Amy. We love you, Amy. Yeah. <laughs> we love you, Amy. <laughs> um, I, sorry, love, I didn't really yeah. talk much about what my camera is drawn to. No, but, that's all right. Um, it all, it, it's drawn to, um, it goes back to like where I like spending my time either hiking or by the beach, but um, I'm big into nature photography I like landscapes and cityscapes and seascapes. Anything sort of natural and wildlifey is what I like to do, is what I like to take a photograph of. Mm-hmm. Not that people are not interesting to me. When people, like, candid photos are fun to me and, like, concert photos are fun to me, but, um, like, taking, like, portraits or post photos of people aren't necessarily my favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I, I like thinking of photography, something that was originally for me, um just to get away from like what like my science brain um so if I take a photo of like um a deer or something the deer is gonna look at that photo and be like eh I don't like that photo that that much but if I take a photo of like a friend um they're like ah I don't know how I feel about that photo even though I'm I think it might look great yeah Uh, I hear you so it goes back to my own like satisfactions and my own like when I, it goes back to just being a little bit selfish about something for me. Um, but then that's also kind of grown into, like, with my photography, I, I don't think I ever really want to be, like, a gallery person or um, have, like, a big art show or something. But I want to use photography to help tell important stories, um, to help people see the world in a way that I'm able to see the world. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I know it sounds pretentious, maybe. No, it, I, I, I don't use it think as it a tool does. For good. That's how I mean. That's how I approach it too. Is like it, that's how it all started. Honestly, is this like fascination mm-hmm. with like every single person is like this soul embodied that has these like like windows of eyes. Not to sound like too deep, but like mm-hmm. everyone. I can only really know how I see the world. Mm-hmm. And like, that's such a curiosity to me of like, is it the same as how other people see the world? Probably mm-hmm. not. So like, I feel like I started taking photos the same way as you, like on my, like my like crappy cell phone. But for the time the technology was good. So I thought it looked good. But now mm-hmm. when you measure it against what, where we're at and the technology we have now, we're like, yikes. Um, but it was sort of an attempt at like, why don't I just start showing people like little snapshots of like how I view the world? Because I feel like I go around and I'm like, 
all day long, I'm like, that's so beautiful. Wow. Right. Oh, I'm like in this constant state of awe at like just everything. I'm so curious and like um, such a visual person that that's mm-hmm. really where that started. But yeah, I think for listeners, like a, a big thing, if you're looking to get into photography, even any creative medium or like hobby or anything like just start doing it if your soul is calling you to do it just start because like Rafid and I both were not good when we started and we didn't have the right tools when we started um but we just did it and now years later it's grown into this like really beautiful thing where we both have um like pretty good followings and we're continuing to to like get all these different opportunities and do really what we love but it takes Um, just like grad school, it's like, you're going to be grinding it out to like get recognition. Cause I feel like, especially now with social media, there's so many photographers and so many talented people. Um, but it's just like consistency. And, you know, for me, it's like, I would be doing it even if nobody was paying attention. Like, it's not really an option for me. I I feel like it's, it's a piece of me that needs to find its way out into the world. And I just feel fortunate that like some people connect with what I do. <laughs> I mean, yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Like you don't need to have the fanciest gear when you're starting off. You don't need anything. It's something it needs to come from you and it needs to be something that you want to do. And you hit, I, I totally agree with how you're comparing it to like grad school is uh, you need to want to do it or else mm. like, it's not going to be, fun for you. Yeah, totally. So how can people follow along with the work that you're doing or like get in touch if they're interested in learning more from you or maybe like collaborating or checking out your photography? Sure. So um, I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter. Um, You can follow me at at Rafid Hussein. Um, I've been like my next step photographer uh, photographically is to build a website and that's been on my to-do list for mm-hmm. for years and I just never get the chance to get around to it like this winter break that I'm on right now um I thought this is going to be the time to do it but it's flown by and it might just be pushed off to some other time but I mean yeah, it might be now, one of those things where we we take our own advice because that's what I did with mine is you like you just one thing at a time, get your domain name, get your Squarespace account or wherever you're getting, you're setting it up and then like just start chipping away at it because it is so time consuming. And then you have to update it with all your photos and all of that. But like, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, having that living portfolio is, is I think a, a great step for you. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> one day, one day soon. You're you'll right. get there. You'll get there. I'll get there. Yeah. Um, but until then, follow Rafid on social media. Yes. Um, and so I wrap up my show by asking all of my guests the same series of questions. Um, and so we'll start with what do you think is the most pressing environmental challenge that we're facing? So – we talked a lot about climate change and um, climate change impacts. And I think that's super important, obviously. Um, but I think maybe like the, the bigger problem might for me be um, science literacy because mm-hmm. um, 
there's so many reports that come out all the time. There's so many stories that come out all the time about how climate change is happening. It's real. It's impacting so many people, but people just aren't able to connect with that or be, or aren't able to take action. Not enough people at least are able to take action just from what they're reading and seeing online. Um, there's so many people in the world that still don't believe that it's really a, that big of a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess the biggest challenge is, is not just climate change and literacy, but um, science communication as well, like being able to connect with people to make them understand why <laughs> climate change is such a big problem. Yeah. And I also think something I've been noticing lately too is like offering hope and opportunities for action. So like highlighting mm. the things that are going well, in addition right. to highlighting like all of the madness that's happening, like yeah. it's easy for people to feel like the problem is too big for them to do anything about and just sort of giving up. Right. Um, and yeah, so I think that there's a lot of, lot of um, room for improvement <laughs> there. Yeah. Um, and what are you energized about moving forward? I'm just, there's just so much good work happening around the world at the same time. Um, there are people like you telling important stories. There's organizations like Ocean Conservancy, um, like in school, with all my my classmates that are all working on studying so many um, important things and trying to find answers for for all these problems like climate change and helping people that are impacted the most. Um, I'm just really energized by how many people are working at the problem now and how the world is coming, starting to come together, perhaps not fast enough by my, my (laughs) standards, but everyone's moving the right direction. It seems like we just got to do more. Yeah. Yeah. And this last one is sort of a two part question. You can approach it however you want. Um, So what is the best advice you've ever been given and, or what advice do you have for our listeners? Um, I knew this question is coming and I wish I really had like a better answer, but (laughs) the best, honestly, the best advice that I've gotten from like a professional perspective came from my boss, Amy Trice, um, the director of ocean planning and ocean conservancy. Um, she's always told me and it's worked out well, great for me is be kind first and then work hard. Mm. And that's how you'll get ahead on whatever you're doing. Um, and it sounds cheesy and it sounds cliche, but it's, it's so, so true. true. Yeah. Like the best <laughs> so people true. that I work with, like interacted with, collaborated with have been like the kindest, most fun people. And the best results have come from working with like kind and smart. You have to like do the work and like do the work, but yeah. you got to be able to connect with people. You got to be able to like be kind to yourself, kind to others that show grace. Um, we're all living a tough world right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are going through it. So if yeah, you're able like, to be kind, be kind. Never forget that there's a human being behind like the work that we're all doing and yeah. the meetings that we're having and the people making decisions. Like, yeah, I, I think that's awesome. Great advice. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then I guess advice that I, I would maybe have to give people um, just thinking from like a photography, like doing what you want to do one day type of thing um, is find something that you really like and just keep pursuing it. Um, Even if it doesn't necessarily fall into what your professional 
life is like with us in photography, like that really wasn't a part of my education at all, but it's something Mm -hmm. that I, I loved and was able to kind of bring that along with me and connect it to my like environmental professional goals. And um, I've really been able to use it as a tool to drive my professional work as well. Yeah. I think it's really cool to see over time how um, you can kind of start to bring all of these different things that you love and all these different passions together like the, like our photography work and like this podcast and then the work that we do with Healthy Ocean Coalition, like you realize like you can live your life as your true authentic self um, and figure out a way to make it work. Um, And then also I think that's such great advice too, because like we live in a place and a time where often I think we're supposed to like define ourselves as like one thing or like plant Mm -hmm. our flag in one place. And it's like, humans are multifaceted and we're allowed to have different interests and be good at many different things and be complex, complicated beings. And that's Mm -hmm. fine. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, Well, Rafid, thank you so much for joining me today. This was an absolute pleasure. It was so nice to catch up with you and, you know, I know that we're going to stay in touch, but (laughs) absolutely. Thank (laughs) Thank you so, so much for having me on. This is so much fun. Um, I had a really, really great time and I feel so honored to be included with all the like incredible people they've already spoken with. Yeah. And the, the most exciting thing is we're going to have you on again toward the end of your grad school journey. So this is not the last that we'll hear from you. (laughs) No, definitely not. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your story with us. And I'd also like to thank the listeners. If you like what you heard and want to hear more of this show and others like it, You can find us at the American Shoreline Podcast Network wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribes, rates, and reviews are very much welcome and appreciated. And if you're someone that enjoys social media, we are the American Shoreline Podcast Network on Facebook and at Coastal News 365 on Twitter and Instagram. I also welcome you to connect with me personally. I am at Jenna Valente on Instagram and at Yenna Bena on Twitter. That's Y-E-N-N-A-B-E-N-N-A. And... Please find us online and let's chat about our beautiful coastlines.